everyone, and welcome back to another Privacy International podcast from our Reproductive Rights and Privacy Project. I am Sarah Nelson, and I lead the Reproductive Rights Project here at PI. Today, my colleague Laura is speaking with Dr. Subhasri Narasimhan and Dr. Dabney Evans. Dabney and Suba authored a recent paper called A Narrative Analysis of Anti-Abortion Testimony and Legislative Debate Related to Georgia's Fetal Heartbeat Abortion Ban. And the paper delves into how, during legislative debates, misinformation and non-medical information is brought into a debate and discussed and then flows into larger policy debates and sometimes even into the drafting of legislation. And we were really interested in speaking with both Dabney and Suba about their paper because we at PI focus a lot on misinformation, on non-medical information in sexual and reproductive rights. And their paper is a really important documentation of how non-medical information is discussed and then goes into the larger sort of policy discussions with very little critique and oversight. And in this conversation, my colleague Laura discusses with both Dabney and Suba what they found in their paper and also how similar trends of non-medical information have flown from one state to another state's legislative debates and sometimes, as I said, into the drafting of legislation. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Evans and Dr. Narasimhan. Thank you so much for having us. So we're going to begin by really talking about some of the work we've done in Georgia on legislative debate around a specific bill, an early term abortion ban called um, HB 481. And it was debated in March of 2018. Um, and that was when a lot of the uh, committee debate and uh, House and Senate debate um, took place. Um, within my recall, and the slides are now up, um, so what we call this project is really a narrative analysis of anti-abortion testimony and legislative debate related to HB 481, um, which is also known as Georgia's quote-unquote fetal heartbeat bill. Um, a quick disclaimer, um, Heartbeat is the language that's used in the bill, but we do not subscribe to this as a scientifically accurate term. Uh, in terms of where the fetal heartbeat abortion ban um, exists, it is absolutely not um, considered a uh, correctly identified heartbeat. So just to step back a little bit, I wanna give you a background about fetal heartbeat bills in general. So what we think is that they're becoming the anti-abortion legislative measure of choice. In fact, they restrict abortion um, after fetal cardiac activity, possible fetal cardiac activity, around six weeks or whenever detection occurs, which could be um, earlier. Um, this incremental approach really is to erode abortion protections and challenge current precedent. Um, and particularly, it's to move up the court system to challenge Roe v. Wade. Um, since 2011, there have been about 100 fetal heartbeat bills introduced in state legislatures uh, within 25 states. So 16 states proposed banning abortion at fetal heartbeat in 2019. It's important to note, though, that most of these, all of these, are enjoined in some way if they pass the legislature. So, for example, North Dakota, Arkansas, and oh, could you go back one second? Sorry. Um, 
North Dakota, Arkansas, and Iowa successfully enacted legislation, but um, it was struck down in the courts and enjoined. Thank you. Um, so again, uh, HB 41 was de debated in March of 2018, uh, sorry, 2019, and it was signed into law in, um, in May of that year, May of 2019, and then it was slated to become law January 2020, so there was a bit of a delay. However, under, during that time, there was a legal challenge by um, Sister Song um, under the, uh, the Sister Song v. Kemp banner. And so there's been a temporary injunction granted in October 2019. And so the law didn't go into effect in January 2020. So really the purpose of this and our impetus for doing this is that we, Dabney and I are trained public health researchers and often um, we look at policy, but we look at the outcome of policies. So what happens after a policy has been enacted? But the actual creation or enactment of that policy is really understudied in public health. So we wanted to see what was going on in the legislative debate and community testimony, particularly because we saw that around HB 481, anecdotally, there was a trickle into the discourse in Georgia. Um, so I'm going to talk a little bit about our public health methodology that we used. Um, we are qualitative methodologists, and so we used what we uh, believe is a, a, a type of classical methodology called narrative analysis. But what we actually did was we identified first committee meetings that used public video archives. We focused on these committee meetings and excluded thing, things like rules, um, procedural discussions, because those didn't really add a lot to uh, the debate and discussion, but we also saw that committee meetings were kind of a rich, untapped um, slate of narrative testimony um, that occurs before bills get into the House or into the Senate, where, where a lot of decisions have already really been made when people are discussing in, in House and, and state houses and state legislature. So we identified six committee um, meetings to include in our um, in our analysis and then we took those videos and transcribed them verbatim using a um, automatic transcription software. Then we checked those transcripts to the video um, and we call this process fidelity checking. The most important part is how we actually figured out the categories of analysis and that's we created what is called a code book where we included um, deductive codes which are codes we believed we would find because of, of prior knowledge of this um, topic. So, um, for example, we thought um, there would be discussion of God, life, um, uh, rape, incest, things like that, that have been discussed in previous legislation. Um, and then we uh, created what's called inductive codes. Inductive codes are really specific to what you find after reading um, the, the transcribed scripts. So um, here, one of the ones that we found were heartbeat and then also personhood. Um, so these were, were things that just emerged from the literature in the voice of the people speaking. And then we did what was called thick description. So essentially, um, we created um, parent codes or our main categorical uh, descriptions and those main categorical descriptions that had at least 25 pieces of text um, we we 
looked at them more closely and made what's called thick descriptions where we uh, illuminate all of the broad sweeping um, information that um, these codes encompasses. Um, I want to be clear also about this methodology. We focused a lot on what people said, but it's different than something else that's been used called a content analysis, which is where you count the number of times somebody says something. We saw that sometimes information wasn't necessarily used a hundred times or 200 times or words weren't said that many times, but the, the argument itself was uh, more important or put forth multiple times, if that makes sense. So I'm going to begin cursorily telling you about what our results are. So what we found when we looked at these um, committee uh, debates systematically is we found that within the argument of supporters of HB 481, we found a what, so what they were doing to advance the argument, and then how, which we believe are the tactics in which they're using to advance this argument. So in our what column, or in our what um, strategies idea, we, we found that uh, the argument was based on using heartbeat as a specific marker of life. So a heartbeat vividly demarcated life within this argument. Um, there was an impetus to create a new class of, pro uh, a protected class of persons. And then there was a focus on expanding state sovereignty in order to protect fetal rights. And finally, the overall goal of all of this was to challenge Roe. And how were the tactical strategies, right? So that's kind of the rich, even richer part of this, um, this argumentation. So what were people using to advance this argument? We found that they appropriated specifically previous progressive um, victories and civil rights victories in their language and speech. Um, there was a marked oversimplification of science. There was a layering on to women's health, and, and I, my colleague Dabney will talk a little bit more about all of these. Um, and specifically, they made a lot of false equivalencies between fetuses and um, women's uh, rights, Black and LGBTQIA people's rights. Um, and finally, they, they specifically focused on capitalizing on progressive gains. And so now that I've kind of given you a, an overall picture, I'm gonna turn it over to Dr. Evans, who's gonna give you a much more deep dive into our results. Thanks, Suba, and thanks again to Privacy International for hosting us to share about this work. So I'm gonna do a little bit of a deeper dive into each of the elements that Suba just described, which includes what were the strategies that were being used, as well as the how, which are the tactics that are being used to advance this particular type of legislation which we refer to as early abortion bans, also known as fetal heartbeat bills. First element here that we identified is the use of the term heartbeat, and we put it in quotes for the reasons that Suba earlier described, and equating heartbeat as, um, as an indicator of both life and life being an indicator of personhood. So the word heartbeat and the term heartbeat was asserted as a legally significant and medically sound indicator of several things, life, pregnancy viability, that is the likelihood that the pregnancy would continue, which is not a medical term, and distinct personhood. And I will say that the words that you see on your screen 
uh, in yellow are direct quotes from participants. So just a little bit about the participants here. As Subu mentioned, we actually drew these data from publicly available data that were taking place through the legislative process. And so the participants in, this, uh, in these data are legislators themselves, as well as community members who were testifying as the bill was being debated. So one of the elements related to this particular notion about indicator of life was the way in which life was defined by its opposite, death, where heartbeat was seen as a sign of life. So the quote that you see here is, the cardiovascular system is the first organ to reach a functional state. The heart begins at three weeks and one day, two days post-fertilization. That is not a medically accurate statement, but there was other language that was used to make this um, very simple and understandable for a lay audience. So for example, one participant talked about how everyone has seen an episode of a medical TV show, for example, where a heart rate was being monitored and you might see a flat line and that everyone understood that, understood that the absence of that um, heartbeat is the state of death. And so therefore the detection or the presence of a heartbeat or cardiac activity should be considered as life. So that's the, the simple argument that's being made. There were also other, um, other tactics or techniques that were used within this particular element. And these include what we call lexical bridges. So using purposefully terms like unborn child, child in utero, and early infant. These are not medically accurate terms, but they do have a sort of connotation and they, um, they elicit a sort of imagery that when people think of a child, they probably most likely think of a, a, a five-year-old child. And an early infant, they definitely think of a baby. So using terms like that within the context of discussing um, these kinds of bills sort of evokes a certain sort of sentiment. Um, so the quote here, what I'm telling you when you think about a child, let's take, for example, some of the horrific legislation we've seen in other states. And this was referring to legislation on extraction, which is a kind of abortion that take, can take place later in pregnancy. Uh, so then here, again, in the quote, referring to early infants as an infant that is in their early stages of development. Again, this is not a medically accurate term, and we'll talk about how we pulled apart some of these statements a little bit later on. So the second um, element that emerged from these data were that fetuses are entitled to legal protection. Basically, that fetuses should be a protected class under the law. And the uh, equation is made between fetuses and other traditionally and historically protected classes, including uh, formerly enslaved African uh, and Black Americans, as well as LGBTQ people who have been active in the same-sex marriage movement. We'll come to that a little bit more. But the basic argument here is that fetuses are a class, they're, they have value, they have an inherent value, and that they're inherently vulnerable. And it is this vulnerability that means that they should be legally protected. So for example, we recognize that no matter the manner of conception, whether a child's conceived in a loving family, conceived in an unplanned way, conceived in rape, those children are all equally innocent before the law and of the same value. So trying to establish value with fetuses, and again, using some of those lexical bridges by using the term child and children to refer to them, and establishing the need for protection. And then the 14th Amendment of the US Constitution is basically the grounds for that protection. And this is a constitutional claim for protection. 
An example here where one participant stated, the 14th Amendment passed in 1868 to give full legal recognition to entire classes of persons, those were formerly enslaved um, Africans, that had never been given full legal recognition. And that's exactly what we're doing here. So here an example of comparing fetuses to um, formerly enslaved Africans in the US context. And finally, and most directly, fetuses were compared to these other groups experiencing discrimination. And this is important because it's discrimination that is both historic in nature, but also contemporary. So this particular participant shared that Georgia, the state of Georgia, has a compelling interest to protect the most vulnerable among us, the same way the nation came back and protected black people during slavery. And this is no different in my mind. So the idea here being that this legislation is actually a correction or a protection um, that's intended to, um, to reduce some sort of vulnerability that a particular po a population may be subject to. So then the third element that we detected in our data was having to do with states' rights. So many of you may be aware that the US is a federalist system and there are many rights that are devolved to the states. And there are very complicated ways in which the state and the federal government interact, particularly around health. The assertion here, and recognize that this is within a state legislature, is that states can and should provide legal protections over and above federal protections. And so in this case, the argument is that the federal protections, the federal um, rights that exist under jurisprudence in the form of Roe versus Wade are insufficient to protect um, citizens' rights, and under the banner of citizens, the state of Georgia would consider fetuses to be citizens in that context. So the claim here is that states need to rebalance power between themselves and the federal government. And this quote from our participant sort of sums that up. So Georgia can join multiple other states that are reclaiming their constitutional autonomy um, to make a bold move to say that under the Constitution, this is our role and not yours, the federal government. One other thing of note regarding this particular argument is that, and I should say that all of the participants that we're quoting here and in this analysis were supporters of this bill. We have a separate analysis which is examining those that were opposed to the bill. But in this particular instance, even supporters of this bill were concerned about its fiscal implications. There was not a fiscal note attached to the bill, and there was recognition even among supporters that there were going to be tremendous costs, costs both related to the enforcement of the bill as well as the legal challenges that were almost certain to ensue, and they did ensue, as you heard earlier from Suba, in the form of a legal challenge, Sister Song versus Kemp. So the last element that I'll share about has to do with the tactics that were being used. And the primary tactic um, that was being used was appropriation. And there were several sort of sub-tactics that were being used. The things that were primarily appropriated were medical science, mainly obstetrics and gynecology, but not always. We also saw examples of pediatrics and child development being appropriated. And the other major thing that was appropriated was the law. So this table and all of the quotes and things that we've shared have been illustrative. This is just to sort of highlight what we found. There are other data which, um, which support these. So these are just examples here. So you see on this table some examples of the tactic being used, mainly misinformation, misrepresentation of the facts, or direct co-optation. In the third column, you see an example um, from the supporters of the bill. And then in the final column, you see the ways in which we fact check these statements. So just as an example, the first example here, 
The American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology is a professional organization of which um, most licensed obstetricians and gynecologists are a member. It's a professional medical organization. And the statement here is that that organization recognizes in their 2015 guidelines that the standard for a viable intrauterine gestation, as it's called heartbeat, that a pregnancy is viable at that point. And at that point, you have a 95% likelihood of the pregnancy going forward to birth. So there's a lot in this statement. The first thing is the use of a credible source. ACOG is a credible source of scientific and medical information related to obstetrics and gynecology. But in fact, the 2015 guidelines that are mentioned did not actually say what this statement claims. There are actually no data to support that assertion. There is a study that was done, and we mentioned this, um, one study that found a correlation between heart rate and first trimester spontaneous abortion. That was actually a sonography study. It was not actually a study about pregnancy viability or the viability of a fetus. So what you see here is, is a conflation of a credible source with information that's coming from another source and sort of making it seem like it's coming from the same place. So that's um, confusing and, and definitely an oversimplification of facts. I'll turn it back to Suba now just to wrap it up in terms of where things stand with the bill and then we'll go into some questions. So currently, um, I just as I discussed before, HB 481 is under injunction and being challenged by the court case Sister Song v. Kemp. And we feel um, that this uh, work is largely useful in, um, in particularly um, informing pro-choice advocates for their own strategies to advance uh, sexual reproductive health and rights. Thank you very much, Dami and Suba, for this enlightening presentation. Um, just to focus on some of the aspects and concepts that you mentioned previously, could you tell us a little bit more about the status of the bill, elaborate perhaps on the status of the case uh, that is currently pending, and your sense of what's coming up next? Absolutely. So as Suba mentioned, um, this bill was signed into law in May of 2019, and it was intended to go into effect in January, January 1st, 2020. So um, I think it's important to note that these data were collected very quickly and analyzed very quickly because we knew that this was a real measure that was going to impact people's lives. So we worked as quickly as we could in order to gather these information, make them publicly available before the law went into effect. Um, after the bill was signed into law in May, as was mentioned, several groups joined together to challenge its legality, its constitutionality. And Sister Song is the lead plaintiff. Sister Song is a national reproductive justice coalition that has many members across the U.S. and including Georgia that um, was focused on the ways in which this bill was going to negatively harm particular groups of people, and those included women of color, women of reproductive age and women of color in particular. So Sister Song is the lead plaintiff. There are several other plaintiffs. Those include a number of clinics, abortion providers, as well as clinicians who are um, named abortion providers. And they're making those claims on behalf of their patients. Um, there are several organizations that are providing legal support. Those include the Center for Reproductive Rights 
and the American Civil Liberty Union, the American Civil Liberties Union of Georgia. So they're providing the legal aid. Those groups banded together, and in June, they filed this lawsuit, Sister Song v. Kemp. In October, um, there, was a, there was a request between June and October for a temporary finding. That was basically an, a request for a temporary injunction so that the bill would not go into effect in January, negatively impacting women's lives. And in October, um, a judge that was hearing the case decided that they would provide a temporary injunction, meaning that the bill could not, the law could not go into force. So what that means on the ground is that while this is currently a law in Georgia, it is not in effect. Abortion is still legal in Georgia, and as in other states where this type of legislation has happened, all of those other bills have also been enjoined. This law continues to work its way through the courts, right? So that's a temporary injunction that's in effect um, as it plays its way through the courts. So I think that um, one thing that's really important for listeners to keep in mind is that um, this, these kinds of arguments, this is just one tactic that exists in terms of challenging reproductive rights, both domestically and globally. So in the US this summer, there is a case that is pending before the US Supreme Court that's called June Medical v. Russo. And the Supreme Court um, has heard arguments on that case earlier in March and will be making a ruling in June about that case. That case is not about an early abortion ban. That case is about health regulations, a health regulations argument, and a set of laws that are called trap laws. Those are the targeted regulation of abortion providers. This is a this case, June Medical, is a nearly identical case to one that was heard just a few years ago in 2016 by the Supreme Court. In that case, Whole Women's Health versus Helderstadt, the Supreme Court found that these restrictions, these trap laws, were unconstitutional because they put an undue burden on women in seeking abortion care. Um, and it remains to be seen how the court will find in this Louisiana case. But I mention all of that just so that we recognize that these are one, not one-off cases. This is, a this is a system and a set of arguments that are designed to challenge um, the existing standards that exist under Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood. And that um, Georgia in this case is a battleground for testing one of these tactics. And we have a sort of feedback loop that exists between um, the U.S. and other places in the world. So in the case of these early abortion bans, we see that Georgia and other states have been a testing ground. State legislatures, um, particularly conservative state legislatures, have passed these bills, and now they're working their way through the courts. I wouldn't be surprised if we begin to see similar kinds of legislation in other places around the world. We've already seen the global gag rule um, that has been off and on within, um, within the world, you know, depending on um, the, the leadership that's in place, that restricts the way in which U.S. funds can be used, both how U.S. funds can be used and the way that organizations can operate. So organizations um, that accept U.S. funds are prohibited from speaking about abortion, not only providing abortion, but also speaking about it. And what we've now seen is that a similar policy has developed in the US in the form of Title X restrictions 
So that domestic clinics providing sexual and reproductive health services and education have a similar ban. So it's a feedback loop that goes both ways. We see experimentation on the global stage that's linked to US foreign aid, and that sometimes comes back home to our own policies. And likewise, policies are being tested here in the US that are restrictive to reproductive rights that may make their way to the global stage. Yes, and to, to add to that feedback loop uh, concept, we're also seeing um, information or misinformation that's been used here in um, Georgia debates actually be added or amended to other state bills. So for example, much of the information that you saw on our last chart, um, for example, um, if a heartbeat is detected, um, a pregnancy is 95% likely to go to term, which is complete, lack, completely um, baseless, um, is now being uh, inserted into uh, uh, laws in South Carolina that are be currently being debated in committee. So this feedback loop is not just um, at these like large policy levels, it's also at the state level. And adding to what Dabney said about um, the Title X or domestic gag rule, which some people call it, um, is that it's really uh, created a large dearth of funding for federally qualified health centers, which is where a majority of low income and rural people get their health care in terms of sexual and reproductive health. So um, this personhood argument is something that has been floated and part of um, what it's based in has to do with Roe versus Wade. So again, as Suba mentioned earlier, all of this legislation is really designed to challenge Roe versus Wade. So in Roe versus Wade, and as well as subsequent um, Supreme Court findings, including Planned Parenthood v. Casey, um, this standard of viability was introduced. And so viability has to do with the likelihood that a fetus would survive outside of the uterus. Um, and so that standard is now being challenged basically through this personhood argument. The viability is generally understood to take place between about 22 and 26 weeks of gestation. That is much, much further along in pregnancy, most pregnancies lasting up to 40 weeks of gestation, and many other limits on abortion being close to that time period. But viability is not a hard line in the sand. It is something that has a lot to do with um, the health of the mother, the pregnancy itself, the conditions and circumstances of the pregnancy, and really viability is a standard that is a determination best made by medical professionals. It's not something that can easily be legislated or determined even by setting you know, a, a certain weak gestation policy. Um, and so that's something that we should really be leaving to medical experts. These early abortion bans are looking to limit abortion much earlier in pregnancy. So the first detection of cardiac activity is typically around six weeks. That's when it's possible to detect such activity. And let's be clear, part of the reason that we don't use the language heartbeat is because there's not a fully formed heart at this time. Um, basically what is uh, detectable is electrocardiac activity, um, pulsation of particular um, elements of the fetus that will eventually develop into the heart organ, but which are not at that, at that stage. But what the argument here about the early abortion bans is trying to link the notions 
of viability to heartbeat and then heartbeat as being linked as a sign of life and life being an indicator of personhood. So it's a little bit of a connect the dots, but to put all those pieces together so that um, folks who are in support of these kinds of bills can make a challenge to the, the standard of viability that we currently understand. Yes, and I would say even beyond the legal notions or legal definitions of viability, um, I think what's also important to capture here is the vividness of the language, but the simplicity of the language. So there is a, um, there's a very strategic initiative going on here in the sense that personhood arguments are not new in terms of, uh, of legal you know, legal challenges to abortion. But what is new is the strategy which uh, incorporates social justice mindsets. And frankly, the use of equal rights protections, which um, create sort of this, this very, um, this justification in some people's minds for creating, um, for, for creating this protected class of persons. And those who are in who study the law or who um, read the law also know that when we create a protected class of persons, we're essentially also changing um, the the larger ethos of who we think is vulnerable and important in society, and they're building upon that idea. And this idea is also incredibly, incredibly, I think, potent and volatile to people who are just learning about the concepts of social justice and just applying the con concepts of social justice. Um, and so that in, in some ways is both why this strategy is something to be um, examined, to, to understand and to look out for, but also to really, really pick apart as um, people who believe in, um, uh, in preservation and pro-women policy. I would just add two things to that, which have to do with the legal justification here. So a lot of this, as we mentioned, is grounded in the 14th Amendment. And there are two clauses to the 14th Amendment. So the first part of it says that all persons born or naturalized in the United States. That language is pretty clear, right? That you only are entitled to the protections of the constitutions if, Constitution if you are born. Um, but the second part of the clause is really the piece that supporters of this bill are clinging on to. And that part talks about um, that all people are entitled to equal protection under the law. And so this is why personhood becomes important because essentially what the argument um, of supporters of these kinds of bills are trying to do is to pick apart those two clauses of the 14th Amendment, in essence, cherry pick. They want to ignore the piece that says born right? And they want to focus in on the part that says equal protection. And so that's really the argument that they're trying to make. Um, I think that one of the things that's really, really important for those that are interested in policy analysis generally is that we ought to be fact-checking this. Um, as Suba mentioned, one of the things that we've observed is that some of the arguments that were being made within the legislative debate have subsequently been written into draft legislation without any references or sources, right? So um, one of the things that we need to think about as a society is to think about transparency and accountability in lawmaking, right? So it should not be acceptable 
for legislators to take dubious scientific findings and write them into a piece of legislation. Really, it shouldn't be acceptable to, and I use the example here of the South Carolina bill, where the South Carolina bill was a further evolution of the Georgia bill. What the South Carolina bill has done is it has said, there's a section that says, according to medical science, and then a set of bullet points that reiterate some of the things that we observed in Georgia without citation, without reference, without fact-checking, without accountability. And so our legislators are not public health experts. They, many of them are not medical experts. Um, few of them have the kind of scientific knowledge and expertise to actually be able to um, you know, truly understand these complex medical issues. And so we really ought to pay careful attention to the extent to which these kinds of things are being written into law. They are lawmakers. We have to respect their authority and their knowledge and expertise. But this is precisely why things like community testimony, where experts, medical experts and scientific experts have the opportunity to share their perspectives in a public forum, that's exactly why this kind of public participation is important to be able to fact check and to ensure that what is written down into law and passed into law is accurate and reflective of what we understand science to say. I think there was also a purposeful flattening of these complexities within these arguments. Uh, it's done on purpose, in or, I think, in order to appeal in some ways to hearts and minds, um, a, a way to say, you know, but we all understand, and this is a simple issue, when it's actually an incredibly complex set of scientific things put together, you know? And um, so I would also, you know, add to some of what Dabney said, um, there was a specific and I think very, very strategic way of aligning misinformation with credible um professional organizations and sources. So for example, they would say something like the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology says, and then the next sentence would be something that was actually not from any type of piece of text, or maybe it was from a study, but it was taken completely out of context. And so this, this is also a subtle signal to people who are listening that this information is credible. When, when in debate, you cannot say, I, this is, let me say, you know, X at all said this, right? You can't show your citations. So there's signaling of credibility going on here as well, you know, uh, where, we're, where they're positioning misinformation with credible sources. And the credible sources here, the professional organizations, have worked hard to create statements that go against many of these claims. On, based on science. Based so on here, science, all based on science, yes. Okay. So here I would underscore the importance of science and not just because I'm a scientist, but um, it, I recognize that in our current climate, there are a lot of tensions between you know, uh, perceptions of elite institutions and a lot of distrust of science. And I think that's something that we all need to consider as we move um, throughout our lives and throughout the information that we process and receive sort of in a, you know, in a fake news environment is to really bring some critical thinking to bear um, and to think about the ways in which we ask questions and don't just accept things at face value just because someone says them as fact. 
Um, and I think that we could use a lot more of that within civil society um, broadly. So the examples that I would give would have to do with um, sexual violence or rape and incest. Um, there were some policies which were really, really disturbing here, um, particularly in that the initial version of this bill and in several other states we've seen, there have been no exceptions for abortion in the case of rape or incest. What eventually happened with this particular bill, and I do think that this was um, you know, a positive development, although it was not an easy development, was that rape and incest exceptions were added to this bill. But rather than being added because uh, they were the right things to do in consideration of people that have had those experiences, these exceptions were added and viewed um, by the participants in our study as a matter of consensus. And I think this is, this is really important because, because what it does is it really brings to the fore what these bills are about, right? And what these bills are about is they are about the control of pregnant people's bodies. This is about the state making decisions about when and how a person can or cannot have a particular medical procedure, which is known to be safe and legal in this country at this time. And so it really allows us to bring the focus onto those people. And in the case of rape and incest exceptions, the way that this law turned out was not that those exceptions were sort of automatic, but instead there were some real, uh, if this bill were to go into effect, some real challenges. So for example, survivors of rape and incest would have to have a police report. Well, having a police report um, as an incest or a rape survivor would mean that a person would have to, within you know, hours or perhaps days of, a, of an incident, a traumatic incident, they would have to report such an incident to the authorities. And for, for people that are familiar with gender-based violence, we know, again, based in scientific evidence, that there are many reasons why survivors of such violence do not disclose this kind of experience, sometimes ever not to mention within hours or days of their experience. For, so for someone that ends up being pregnant as a result of sexual violence, like childhood sexual abuse or rape, um, it just seems really um, unimaginable to expect them to be able to engage with a criminal justice system, to be able to jump through the hurdles of having the documentation of that, to present that documentation in order to be able to get a legal abortion were this law to go into effect. And so that issue really highlights the ways in which this kind of law is really intended to control people's bodies and not necessarily for any other reason. So um, as we mentioned earlier, these, these lexical bridges that we talk about, things like early infant, fetus, you know, child in utero, um, these kinds of, of phrases, early child or early infant, these are not medical terms, right? So infancy is actually defined as the period from birth to one year, right? There is no such thing as an infant before birth. Um, child, similarly, is understood to be the period from infancy to adolescence, Right, so when you look at the American Academy of Pediatrics, they actually define infancy just in, in the way that I just defined it. So these are not medical terms, but instead what they are is they are tactics or tools which are meant to elicit a certain sort of imagery and evoke a certain set of emotions 
um, and attach meaning to that imagery um, to, to get a certain type of response. So these are very deliberate um, uses of language to, to try and get at certain responses um, and to advocate for these kinds of bills. You've mentioned how the anti-abortion movement has sought to appropriate really powerful arguments relating that were previously used in relation to the personhood of Black people and LGBTQ persons. Could you elaborate on the overall aim um, of using these analogies now in the context of abortion, particularly when saying that the 14th Amendment should recognize a right of an entire class of persons that's not been recognized before? And could you also say a little bit about the three-fifths compromise and how it has been referenced in relation to abortion? Sure. Yeah. Well, I'll first start by saying that um, this argument is extremely insulting to um, people of color, to people who are descended from enslaved Africans, to people who identify as LGBTQ, who have worked incredibly hard to secure their civil liberties and human rights, and who continue to exist and live under um, you know, many forms of systemic oppression and discrimination in our country, despite legal protections um, that they, that, and battles that have been hard won. I'll give a couple of examples from our data. So the first is um, one participant who said that there were three times in the US Supreme Court history in which um, the court has been wrong, essentially. And those examples were the cases of Plessy v. Ferguson, Dred Scott, and Roe versus Wade. And those first two cases are cases that were particularly um, having to do with the civil rights and liberties either of enslaved Africans or, or African Americans who were fighting for their civil rights. And so that's a direct connection between those historic experiences um, and the argument that's being made about fetuses that, and specifically the argument is that um, enslaved Africans and black and African American people in the US had historically been viewed as less than full people. That's exactly what the three-fifths compromise was in the US Constitution. It was an agreement to literally count for census purposes um, enslaved people as three-fifths of a person. And so the abortion argument here is that we are in essence making the same mistake by viewing fetuses and embryos as less than full people. So that's the sort of connection that's being made here. The distinction I would make is that enslaved Africans and African Americans and black people who have lived or are currently living in the US are people who have been born. What we're talking about at six weeks, and technically at six weeks, that's not even a fetus. That's actually still the embryonic period of, of pregnancy. And so I really do think there's a distinction here and, and just want to center and focus on how um, insulting this is to the lived experiences of people who fought very, very hard for their rights. And particularly, you know, some of the cases that were mentioned in our data um, were the cases related to same-sex marriage um, and civil rights movements, um, uh, arguments and cases, Brown versus Board of Education, um, as well as others. I, I would also add that um, this, you know, we're, we focused on supporters of HB 481, not necessarily the broad um, 
you know, broad anti-abortion movement, even though we've seen these, this kind of rhetoric come up in, in other debates, and it has been covered in the media as well. And uh, Dred Scott was a, a, was a legal ju justification in the census, correct? And there was a piece of um, HB 481 that was also dealing with counting fetuses in the census. And so there were some parallels there in, in which they were trying to um, essentially say that appropriations should be um, made in the state based on um, accounting for fetuses in the census in order to increase um, fiscal consideration for probably more rural counties. So that's another um, kind of strange parallel, but also they were essentially creating a scaffolding argument, right? That um, at the end of this, we should understand that there's a lot of legal uh, precedent for equal protection, you know, and therefore states should exert their sovereignty, should expand beyond the federal level, and they have the right to do that. So there's there are these two dual um, dual arguments being made at the same time. Um, and of course, I echo Dabney's statements, and it was incredibly insulting, and it's incredibly insulting to read over and over again. And one area we didn't even cover was the um, constant reiteration of um, same-sex marriage um, and um, the uh, within the Massachusetts um, law and how we have now understood that we should expand states' rights to include same-sex marriage, for example, in Massachusetts, right? And so we're trying to do a similar thing here. What other inaccurate information or tactics uh, emerged in your research that drew your attention? I mean, the, the level of inaccuracies in, within the debate is astounding. And I think um, uh, Dabney covered this previously, but there's, there is no fact checking within the law and there is no, there, there is no checks and balance for us um, in that way. And so there's an interesting thing going on here that we also noticed, which is that there was a large amount of scientific misinformation, but the fact that there was a lot of, um, a lot of leaning into science shows that there is an understanding by supporters of these kinds of bills that we live in an evidence-based environment, that people do want to hear that their laws are backed by quote unquote science, even though this was the majority of things that were brought up in this bill were all pseudoscience um, from the supporter side. Um, and so when you've discussed previously things like, um, you know, fetuses have their own distinct fingerprints, DNA, um, blood types, those kinds of things. Those are all arguments that are generally like recycled in anti-abortion movements. And they're, they very much appeal to people wanting to believe um, that there's essentially an entirely full-grown being within someone's um, within someone's body from the, the moment of conception. And it's, it's a, a difficult, it puts um, our argumentation sometimes in a difficult place because once people have that kind of vivid imagery in their, their minds, once people believe those kinds of pseudoscience ideas, it's hard to dissuade even with real uh, clear um, 
um, testimony by um, providers and by, um, by people in the know. Um, you mentioned before a feedback loop whereby um, there are lessons learned from legislative discourse that if, um, if emerging in one place can later be used in other places. I'm interested in learning where was the tactic of using inaccurate information learned, for Georgia at least, and what are the past examples of similar tactics being used? You know, I don't think that our data can specifically answer that question. I think that this has been a practice that has been observed, although we have not systematically studied that historically. So I can't say precisely where that begin, where that began. Um, but I think that what we can say is based on our observation of what happened in a very short period of time from the time the Georgia law passed until the time that this bill in South Carolina has subsequently been debated is that people who are in support of these laws are um, reacting, they're evolving quickly, they're operating in a very nimble way, and that people who are in opposition to these kinds of bills should similarly be um, considering um, how quickly this evolution is happening and should similarly be nimble in terms of our response. Um, and part of what I think that that response consists of is um, the kinds of analysis that Suba and I have conducted here, and which is really a participatory process of democracy. Um, and that is to say, you know, we, we can talk about elections and elections are an important thing, but there aren't many people that routinely show up to listen to legislative debate. And, um, you know, there are lobbyists that are advocating for particular causes and people may occasionally call their representatives to express their um, support or opposition to a particular bill. But um, for those that are living in participatory democracy, these kinds of legislative debates, these public hearings where people can actively voice their support or opposition to a bill is a really critical piece. And it, it underscores the importance of an engaged civil society an informed civil society, a questioning and critical civil society that um, forms part and parcel of a healthy democracy in my mind. Yeah, and we want to make sure that um, people are engaged from a young age in their democracy and civil society, that they understand how bills get from committee to House to Senate and hold their legislators accountable, not just from the time that they can vote, but from the beginning of understanding how democracy works, I think. And part of that, the reason we did this was to encourage people to more people in our field to think and debate and discuss legislative processes, not just legislative outcomes. What international ramifications do you foresee uh, that the discussion of the Georgia bill will have or other similar discussions that have taken place in the United States? Well, I think um, for, for better or worse, uh, many other countries look to the US for guidance on policy. Um, and I won't speak to sort of our standing on the global stage right now and how that has changed over time. But I do think that um, the ways in which the US behaves both towards its own citizens as well as the ways in which it behaves on the global stage 
are oftentimes emulated by others, and particularly those that may not be operating in democratic societies. So when I think about this kind of law and its purposes and its intentions to control pregnant people's bodies, I think that there are lots of actors that are interested in controlling people's lives, and this is just one tactic for doing so. It's a very particular tactic for doing so, but I think that it is, it is um, one thing that sort of feeds into um, an autocratic state and um, something that ought to be watched very closely. You know, my, as an American, um, my wish for my own country is that we live up to the promise of the dream of the United States. And I don't think that that dream has yet been fulfilled. And so we, as every other country in the world, are a work in progress. And we need to constantly challenge ourselves, both within and outside of government, to reach the ideal standard. And um, to my mind, this kind of policy is not moving, it toward, moving us towards that standard. Uh, I would also add that laws don't have to take effect to have a chilling effect on abortion. And so just the introduction of this law into debate, um, anecdotally, we heard there was quite a surge for um, in calls to abortion clinics asking if abortion was still legal. I think we can think about that um, in constrained circumstances. You know, we, we are in the United States where there are constrained circumstances in many, many states, but in general, there's relatively good amounts of communication and information on average for people. So when we have those, I, the, the thoughts about chilling effects of these laws, think about what that does when we put it into a context where there's much less resources, much less communication, much more fear and a voicing opposition to the government. And the U.S. also dictates the purse strings of a lot of sexual and reproductive health and rights across the world. And so changing those fiscal, um, uh, you know, those fiscal policies, changing the way sexual and um, reproductive health um, is funded has far-reaching implications. And I think we need to be considerate of that. And beyond that, I think there's been a really problematic, you know, opposition to sexual um, and uh, reproductive health and rights in the national stage from the U.S. And, and we don't need to debate politically what that means, but we know that, again, as Dabney said, the U.S. sets the tone. And we we are now aligned with countries that main, that don't have great histories of human rights um, uh, protections, you know? And, and it, there has been a lot of hard-won um, work on the part of so many people to make sure that um, gender equality is upheld in the United States. And so we need to be thinking about what that means and what the the far-reaching implication of changing a lot of those messages, a lot of that money is uh, across the world. The other thing I'd add, and an important point that we haven't touched upon yet, is that um, banning abortion doesn't stop abortion. It just stops safe abortions. Absolutely. And so many women um, have pregnancies um, that are unintended pregnancies, 
um, that they do not desire for a wide range of reasons um, that they either cannot or are not able to continue. And banning um, a practice which is a safe medical procedure, most of which, especially in the US, happen early in pregnancy within the first 13 weeks, um, doesn't make abortion stop. And we see that in other places where abortion is banned or limited, that unsafe abortion um, is something that happens and women die as a result. Women have very serious health consequences. There are about 57,000 cases of maternal mortality that can be prevented a year from um, unsafe abortion. And those numbers have dropped precipitously in the years since the, millennial, the Millennium Development Goals, but these are still preventable deaths. And so policies like this will not actually lower those numbers, they will more than likely increase them.